0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee owned and operated and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member supported food radio network
3: Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Eric Asimov, Chief Wine Critic for The New York Times. We'll talk about, well, I guess, everything wine with Eric. We'll also taste an Italian red wine from Sicily for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio network. We bring wine to the people. All right, Eric Asimov is the chief wine critic for the New York Times. His columns appear weekly as the poor or wines of the times, in addition to his monthly wine school articles. Eric has an objective, thoughtful, and inclusive approach to wine. Eric's two recent books are How to Love Wine, a Memoir and Manifesto, and Wine with Food, Pairing Notes, and Recipes from the New York Times. Eric, welcome to the Great Nation. Thrilled to be here, Sam. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, and I hope we can cover everything. But before we get into my whole list of things I want to go over with you, I want you to frame for our listeners your background. So, can you give us a brief synopsis of your journey in life and wine that got you to where you are today, which is the chief wine critic of the New York Times?
4: Um, I'll, I'll try to be brief, it may not be easy. I'll cut you off. A bit too. <laughs> Um, I'm basically a, a consumer of, of food and wine, and I have been since I was a teenager, and my parents first took me to France, and I had, um, I had an extraordinary meal at a bistro that's still there in Paris, uh, Bistro Alar. How old were you? Um, I was 14. Wow, young. And, um... You have to understand that uh, I was a, uh, a reluctant tourist. My parents were dragging me uh, away. I had my first girlfriend that summer, and it just seemed, <laughs> you know, like what, its the worst thing that can possibly happen. Your your parents reassert your your ba- basic childishness. Um, so I was, uh, you know, I was basically your your typical disgruntled teenager, and my father. Was going to lunch with some buddies of his that lived in Paris, and my mother couldn't stand to have me around anymore. And she said, "Take him with you." Oh, that's funny. Um, so, we go to this restaurant, and of course, this is the '70s, and. You know, my my parents were interested in food. They watched Julia Child, but you know, we're still eating TV dinners and and instant coffee. Awareness, and so on. but ec-
3: but not execution.
4: Yeah, I mean, this is what was there, right? <laughs> and and so to have this meal. Um, with the the kind of thrilling, vibrant alive flavors that I wasn't used to was um, it, it blew my mind. So you
3: talk about it now. As if it just happened. So it must have I, I been I can that, still
4: taste it. It must have been that
3: <laughs> sort of life-changing. And, and it was very simple food. It was
4: a, an entrecote, which is like a uh, rib steak and haricots and vert, green beans, and uh, daffinoise, potatoes. And I know they probably had a, glass, a bottle of wine on the table. Did your
3: dad let you sip a little wine? Um,
4: I'm sure he let me have a sip. Okay. But, um, you know, this... Uh, it was so good that I said to myself, um, maybe not as as consciously as I'm saying it now, um, I've got to figure out a way to keep having this experience. And so I became one of those obnoxious people who, who couldn't walk down a city street without looking at every restaurant menu I saw. And you know i started reading
3: james beard and and jane and michael this is Stern at like 14 15 16 17 yeah pretty sophisticated for a young teenager
4: well you know you um this is uh you know it's a defensive mechanism to make sure that uh if you don't have access to this food you can figure out how to provide it for yourself and you know that that became a um, a a meaningful and uh, and a meaningful objective for me um, and this uh, lasted throughout college and uh, it really it wasn't until I was in grad school um, where was that in at University of Texas at Austin, which i don't know if then, but it's not a uh, bad food city um, it was, you know, at that time, it was a great food city, just in, in the sense that you had access to uh, Texas barbecue right. and Tex-Mex and all the, the, the sort of, Local of indigenous style. regional right. foods. Uh, you didn't have the restaurant scene that you have there right. now. Um, but you had, uh, uh, well, as grad students, we, we cook for ourselves and we just got in the habit of drinking wine every night. And this... Um, you know, this predated any real – I wasn't reading about wine. There was no um, – there was Robert Parker, but I was unaware
3: of, of him and, and the wine spectator. But that was the first time you were drinking wine with any kind of regularity, right? Yeah, you
4: know before that it was meal beer or, social, or whatever right. but um you know this put it together with a meal and I've always seen wine as part of a meal um, and I had the same sort of wine epiphany down there. I was at uh, uh a wine shop it just it happened to be a a kind of high end health food store <laughs> that now we're all familiar with but at this time the only one in the nation was in Austin whole foods market and they carried wine then they as carried they do wine now. then and in, in very i remember you know on the, on the one hand you had your health food your your bins of grain and stuff like that but you also had organic these organic lentil beans these polished wine racks. Right. and and just completely by chance i i picked a wine we must have been having spaghetti or something and it um, it happened to be by a great producer. Still only cost like 7 or $8. A, uh, Do you remember? A 1978 Barbera d'Alba from Giacomo Conterno. Wow. And, I mean, I had no idea, but I uh, tasted this wine, and it was like, oh, my God. You know, it's the same reaction that I had in Paris. This is so good. I have to keep having this experience. No more of those, you know, uh, uh, jug wines from from uh new york uh, or no we were, oh, we were yeah. getting you european but they were still the you know cheap right. uh piquette but uh so then i started paying attention to wine as well o- always in the context of of food and um eventually i uh i Dropped. Out, this was a uh, PhD program in American Studies that I dropped out of. In trying to figure out what to do with my life, uh, I got a job in journalism in Chicago. And um, uh, then the there, Trib
3: and the Sun Times. Yeah, which one was? So it? I was at the Sun Times, okay.
4: and I was there for about nine months before I got hired by the New York Times. And you know it was kind of strange to me because uh, i didn't my ambition wasn't to be a journalist. My father was a journalist, and I
3: said, i'm never going to do this." Well, take a couple of seconds because you come from a literary <laughs> family. So just frame that for me. Your dad was a newspaper uh, guy? My, my dad
4: was a newspaper guy. He worked for, for 40 years uh, for Newsday. Y- you were a Island. Long Islander. He, so was he, a, was a, he was a reporter, and then he was in all kinds of editorial positions and eventually an, an executive there.
3: You have a famous
4: uncle? Uh, my uncle was Isaac Asimov, the writer. And, um, fairly, fairly prolific. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and um, your sister.
4: And my sister is a journalist at, at the San Francisco Chronicle, where she's been for 30 plus years.
3: So when um, you were at the Trib going to the Times, at the Sun, times,
4: I mean, yeah. You, I, you
3: didn't think journalism would be the path.
4: Well, you know, I I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in in my life. Unlike uh, my sister, who went to Columbia Journalism, and this is something that she, you know, really wanted to do. Um, I I wasn't sure. Uh, I was in national news, and that's how I got hired at the Times, as a national news editor. And... um, One of my uh, early jobs was was to be the late-night editor, which meant I would come in at 7.30 at night, figure out everything that was going into our part of the newspaper. And when everybody else left at 11.30, I would kind of sit there and and monitor the wires. And if something happened, had to get into the newspaper, I figured out a way to do it. Or if stories needed to be updated, I did that. But often it meant I would be sitting there with not a whole lot to do, so I thought, um, you know i I loved our food section. It was then called the living section right and do you
3: remember when it changed to the food section? Um,
4: it, well, it became the dining section dining. in the mid nineties right. and then it became the food section um, now this was just a few years ago i don't right. I don't remember the exact yeah, year I forgot um, but you know, I thought, I've got my days free. If I can spend that time doing some reporting, then I can write while I'm sitting around, and I can sell those articles. I would get paid more free, as a freelancer uh, to the living section. And so I, I started to do that. And I remember um, the first thing I wrote for them was, uh, was about beer, because this was the mid '80s, and and nobody was writing about beer, and, and in fact, you know, the craft beer revolution was already underway in the United States, but it was mostly a West Coast thing, and, and New York was conspicuously absent. Brooklyn like Brewery right here
3: was in early. well,
4: it, it it hadn't quite opened yet, and and Garrett, I met Garrett Oliver at the time; he was the, working uh, for uh manhattan brewing which was like a uh early brew pub here there was a uh something called new amsterdam also oh yeah i forgot about um, that so uh i thought you know I, i was just looking for an opening i wrote about beer and then i started writing about food and then um uh i guess it was noticed that i had an affinity for this and so they uh, moved me over to the living section, um, where eventually I, I became an editor. But uh, what I really wanted to do was write. And uh, back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, I had been pushing for us to do a, essentially a cheap eats column. You know, we had um, uh, Brian Miller was the restaurant uh, critic then and and you know he did a great job i loved brian but there was only so much he could do and and there was a lot of competition then we had uh, new york Newsday, which is uh maybe dimly remembered yeah um the Daily News, uh, Robert Zitcima was writing uh, down the hatch, which is a, this uh, great newsletter. Right, even New York Magazine was. New York Magazine had uh, the Underground Gourmet back right. then, and I thought we we really need something, and and um, you know it was always sort of poo pooed at the times. So, you know, we can't uh, dilute the critical voice of the <laughs> you know, but um, but eventually this competition was was obvious to everybody and and so we had a committee as one does at a news back then at a newspaper to figure out how to handle it and i volunteered to write it and they took me up on it so um i guess that was the end of 91 or 92 i started 25 and under
3: and, Explain quickly what that is.
4: And uh, the idea was that this, uh, these were restaurants that you could get a complete
3: meal for $25 or under. Which usually complemented the restaurant review. Right. that was usually a fancy or yes. expensive um, or well-known uh, you know, yeah. restaurant. Not, as, not necessarily cheap. <laughs> right?
4: As I, I once said, inadvertently, I, uh, you know, every week I, I appear underneath Ruth Reichel, right. which... <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you started that, so that um, yeah and um for me that was a uh uh a joy. It was uh just wonderful. I mean it it meant um exploring the city looking for uh restaurants of of all ethnicities and neighborhoods that you know we wouldn't normally the go to had the best values. Um uh, well, you know, I didn't really care for the word ethnic restaurant, since that seemed to me to uh, apply to everybody. Right. But, but a lot of restaurants opened by immigrants that serving their specific e- ethnicity. Um, and what really became uh, uh, apparent to me was that, um, you know, I, I wasn't writing so much about Food, although that was important, I was writing about culture. I was writing about demographics. I was writing about the city and the structure of the city, and and um, this became uh, more and more interesting to me. The notion not that uh, not that we're looking at a plate simply for its uh, deliciousness, although that is crucial, but also for how it expresses a, a particular culture, what its meaning and significance is. Great. And um, that was something that I uh, I learned to carry over into wine.
3: Um, There's a lot of place, history, people.
4: Yeah. There's and, a deeper
3: and, story than just the glass of wine itself.
4: Yeah. And you know, while I was doing this, I think I was I was kind of educating myself as best I could about uh, wine. I wasn't on the beat, but I was a, I was a Frank Prile acolyte. Frank was uh, my predecessor as, as the wine columnist at the Times, very well known. He Published was books, maybe legendary. The, the first uh, weekly newspaper right. columnist in in the country, or one of one of the first, certainly the first at the Times, right. and he did it for, you know
3: decades and you came in you were you were doing the 25 and under since 92 yeah but
4: when i came over to the food section in 1989 um, you know frank uh i loved frank he was a great guy and he, you know he had a kind of a shucks very you know blue collar aspect but he was uh you know, super smart, well read, smo- spoke French. Wow. Um, you know, very, a cultured man, and uh, but his background was as a, a foreign correspondent, and and I think. There was something that nagged at him about spending his time writing about wine, and so he complained about it a lot. Wow! You know, he he's, that came I mean, through you in your
3: mind. I mean, yeah, I, right?
4: I mean to me, he. You know, I. Yeah. I, I you know, he ought to be. Uh, he he saw himself uh, tramping the through the Khyber Pass, and they were making him write about this sissy subject. <laughs> you know, uh, so I once said to him, Frank. Let me trail after you for six months or so and introduce me to people, uh, uh, teach me what you can. And maybe then if, you are, if, if you're just not interested in doing it anymore, I can take it over and he didn't speak to me for 2 months after he that. took offense to that <laughs> i don't think he took offense to
3: it but i think he suddenly felt a little threatened Threaten. like wow. uh, you know and what year was that cuz you became the wine critic around 2004 2004 was yeah. that well that right was 1989 before... oh um, this i mean th- that when you said that was in 89 yeah oh Jesus. you know
4: I, and i realized that this was a sham that he you know loved doing what he was doing and it was just a front right um and you know after that i i i've learned a lot from from
3: frank when did he leave did he leave and you became the wine critic or there was something well i
4: started writing about wine in addition to um uh the 25 and under column in in 1999 and um I believe it was uh o one or so where we started these uh the New York Times wine panel, which Frank was writing, but I was there tasting with uh with other people and when Frank retired in o four they invited me
3: to to take it over so from eighty nine to o four <laughs> The threat hung around for a while, I guess. uh, Well, you know, I'm I'm
4: actually the least threatening person you can imagine. So, you know, it it wasn't really uh, uh, don't say if I was you're a karate guy. (laughs) Don't mess with you. It, 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 you know what you learn
3: in martial arts—how to avoid conflict. Right. That's that's the art of it. All right. So in 2004, you become the wine critic, and you know we'll talk about that whole thing. But I want you to tell me because you're probably as good a person as anybody. I want you to define, in your words, what is a wine critic? I mean, what you're the wine critic, so right what do you do what's your responsibility your feeling I mean, um, it's, 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 well i
4: i i have uh, several roles first of all i am I'm, I'm the chief wine critic but in fact i'm the only person writing about wine at the times occasionally somebody else may you know do a a story. guest column or something but but for all intents and purposes i'm the only person whose job it is to to cover wine um a critic has a very specific meaning at The Times. Um, y- you are uh, an opinion writer, for one thing. You have the license to to offer opinion, and um, and I take that seriously because I don't. Uh, I don't. Anybody who writes for The Times has a lot of commercial power, whether they. Um, uh, Sees it or or not, like a Pete so, Wells with restaurants. Yeah, I mean, is that the reference? Uh, not so much. I mean, it, it could be Pete. I mean, it could be a, a theater reviewer. Right. Uh, uh, you know, whatever. What you, I what you, you say um, can have uh, an effect on people's lives. So, so you want to take it seriously. Um, but my job is. As I see it, is really to get people um, to think about wine, and to maybe um, expand their notion of what it can be, what it can uh, mean in in their lives, um, how uh, how to pay attention to the stories that that wine has to tell, um, not only about. Uh, you know what's in the glass, how it smells, how it tastes, uh, how it goes with food, but where it comes from, what it means, um, how it expresses the uh, the culture
3: of a particular place and a particular people. Um, so it's a fair reference back to the 25 and under. Absolutely, because it wasn't about picking an ethnic cheap restaurant. It was about the immigrants. Who came here? Cooked the food, the story, and all yeah. of that. And it seems very much to carry over yes. how you approach. I the mean, wine.
4: what's in the glass is important, and it and it starts from there. And you know, part of of my job is to you know answer the proverbial question of of uh, of people on this wide spec in the wide spectrum of readers uh, of the New York Times, <laughs> which starts basically about you know with what. What is a cheap wine I can pick up on
3: my way home for dinner tonight? Well, the Times is, you know, you have specialty wine publications. Yes. Like a wine spectator. Then you have food and wine, right. which covers food yeah. and wine. The Times covers everything, and you're just the segment of it. So the right. audience reflects that. Yeah. So you what have you, to keep what that you in have mind. Is
4: right? a is a huge audience that ranges from. From novices who just want to know what to buy on their way home, to people who have been uh, studying wine for for years and know more about their particular fascination, maybe than I ever will. Right. So you know, you're dealing with this this huge spectrum of, of people with varied interests, and I'm trying to write a column that I hope will appeal to everybody
3: on that spectrum. So that's a good segue to my uh, next question, because you'll tell us about your thinking. So what is the process and, I guess, inspiration for how you select what you put in your weekly columns, certainly taking that into consideration? And, you know, I asked you earlier, but there has to be an objective to the column. So tell me about... The process and what inspires you, you know, to write a particular column. Well, um,
4: as I said, you know, I'm I'm a consumer. I'm a, I'm fascinated with wine and food, and so um, I I need a subject to be interesting to me, for starters. Yeah, sure. and um, I always I think that if it's interesting to me. My job is to to then make it interesting to other people um, recognizing that uh, people's interests are varied and uh, there are people who are not interested in wines that cost more than twenty dollars and there are other people collectors who are collectors <clears throat> and um, uh, that I want to appeal to Both of these segments, maybe not at the same time, but at at different times. So I try to vary um, uh, uh, the prices of the wine, the uh, origin of of the wine, the sorts of wines that I'm writing about. But uh, what generally they have all in common is that I uh, feel... Clearly, that these are good wines that I'm writing about and worthy of people's attention. Um, I don't. I don't want to write. Uh, I don't want to feel compelled to write about things that I have no interest in or that, um, you know, somebody. Uh, through conventional wisdom or or repetition has decided are important, and I don't understand why it's important. I have to, to understand what the appeal is going to be.
3: So that's a bit of the process. And you said, you know, it has to interest you. What what inspires you? I mean, is it things that you've tasted? I know you travel a lot, and that's a lot of fodder for, you know, well, articles. I you mean, know, are those the inspiration? And, and, just,
4: uh, and they have to be <clears throat> good stories often. Right. Um, so, so the inspiration
3: so, is back to what, yeah. the people, the story, the history. And so,
4: you know, I try to do whatever um, any reporter will do. Uh, I, I try a lot of different wines. I talk to a lot of different people in the wine and, and food trade. I, I try to travel. Um, and that's that's really important. Uh, you know, what's not interesting to me are, are trade tastings, mass tastings, um, ticking off uh, uh, fancy or expensive wines just so I can tell somebody I tasted it. Uh, what's, what's interesting to me is actually drinking a wine, um, experiencing it in a travel to the region in, with the winemaker. Yeah, or that's good too. But, to one, but, you know, even here at, in saying in New York at my own, uh, dinner table or in, or in restaurants, you right. want to, to, um, experience of wine in the context uh, for which it is meant, which
3: does not mean tasting 100 wines at a time. And that's, then that's very, very notes. reasonable. Um, so let's take a, a minute here, because we talked about the process and inspiration. But every week, a column appears, and there's three different columns. And yeah. correct, there's the poor there's Wines of the Week, and I think monthly there's Wine School. So well, quickly, not, not
4: Wines of the Week, uh, Wines
3: of the Times. Wine of, wine of, wines or Wine of the time. Wines. Wines of the time. Yes. my bad. So the poor, Wines of the Time, and Wine yeah. School. Yeah. So give me a quick description of the objective right. of the poor. Okay. Well, let me start with uh, the
4: other two. Go ahead. Um, because there's a... Uh, there's a built-in idea that, um, that wine coverage is going to have some sort of practical component, meaning that it's going, going to uh, recommend wines that uh, people can either buy or hope to buy or think about or have in the future or But real tangible recommendations. And so um, once a month, I will do a a Wines of of the Times. This is a a gathering of of the wine panel for people. Uh, We taste a series of wines blind. When you say panel, you select people? Well, Florence Fabricant, my colleague, and I are, are the... Um, the panel meisters. We're, we're always there, right. and I uh, generally invite a couple of guests each time just for other perspectives. Um, we taste these wines. Um, uh, we talk about them. Uh, we give them star ratings. We don't, we don't use a 100-point scale, but we do uh, rate them on a four-star scale.
3: You'll make about a half dozen, eight recommendations. Usually Ten, 10. Okay,
4: and uh, and we'll talk about the wine, where it come fr- comes from, how it's made, what uh, any issues that that might arise from these wines, why people why they're appealing, or you know, in in certain cases, why they're not such good buys, or why um, you know uh, they're really <laughs> why they have problems, right? Um, so that's a that's a built in once a month uh function uh, then wine school and this is uh, an idea that I had uh, a long time ago um, before um, before social media uh, I felt that the the notion that uh, reading tasting notes and scores was a a good way to find appealing wines was was uh, deeply problematical, and that the best way to learn about wines were was basically for people to drink wines themselves and and try to keep track of them
3: in some informal way and so don 't be swayed by the point system or tasting notes yes. Follow your own exploration, likes, tastes. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes, absolutely. So you're and not a fan of tasting notes? No. And you're not a fan of blind tasting either, right? I'm, I'm not. And
4: I guess the analogy would be learning to cook. If you learn to cook, um, at first you're dependent on recipes, um, you need to be told how to sauté something. How much uh, butter? How much butter? What flavorings to use, and and so on. Um, as you do this over time, you gain confidence in your own abilities and your own sense of taste. And you um, you may never uh, completely dispense with. Uh, uh, reading authorities, but you may feel uh, that you know what you like. You know how to cook. You can, in a certain sense, uh, cater to your own taste, and you don't need um, this sense, this sort of outside approval. And uh, I think the same is true in wine. I agree. We, we have to uh, lean on critical recommendations because we're not confident of our own judgment or, you know, we just don't choose to put the time in to develop it, which is fine. But if you are interested in learning about more wines and feel keenly this, this sense of inadequacy, of not you know, people say to me all the time, well, you know, I like that wine. Of course, I don't know if it's good or not. I mean, you know, there's this, oh, oh, oh people are always making excuses for their own, their lack of judgment as they see it. But um, what's the answer
3: to that? Do well, you answer, like it and it's good to you?
4: Um, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's the beginning. If it's good to you, why is it good to you? Keep going. Yeah. And are there other wines like that that you might also find good and if you care enough uh, you can you can learn to recognize what you like you can learn that maybe um, my own taste doesn't always correlate with uh, you know an objective judgment of quality but but that's in some ways um, irrelevant so I had this idea that if people could just get wines, drink them themselves, keep track of what they like and what they don't like. And then, you know, if they bought a mixed case from a good store, then they went back to that store and said, I like this, I didn't like that. Can you ma- make another mixed case for me? And, you know, this would be a way of learning. Um, this, I, I wrote this in a column, I don't know, back in 05 or, or so, uh, go forward to 2014 now we've got um, you know high speed internet uh, wide, widely available people are, are writing in, in social media well, twitter I wanna,
3: facebook etc i want to get to that separate yeah. but i but, we, but we, we, anyway we, we, that's
4: the genesis of wine school so we'll, where right. you have this you go through the same process uh, and have this interactive relationship with readers where we're all uh, I'm recommending a genre of wine and make some specific recommendations. And then people are are drinking them over the course of the month. We're all drinking them over the course of the month. And then we gather again to talk about it. Great. Um, and then comes the poor, which... You know, it, wine is such a, a broad subject. In addition to the, the the recommendations and what it tastes like and rating wines, you're, you're talking about personalities and economics and politics and culture and so broad. Um, and you know, maybe there's other different things that don't fall under the category of of wine school, and that I don't want to do with a wine a blind tasting wine panel. Um,
3: That all comes under the poor. So all three cover what you like to cover one way or another or close to it. Yeah.
4: Um, And, you know, it gives me a lot of freedom, but ensures and and makes my editors happy that there's real practical advice coming along with, uh, you know, whatever esoteric tangent I might go on. So you have the
3: poor, wine of the times and wine school, wine school. Those are the uh, article. Those are the columns you'll see every week. All right, so getting into the social media thing and all that, what influence do you think your writing, your columns, have on wine? And the reason I ask that is in the past there were only a few voices. Criticizing or reviewing wine, mm-hmm. and I didn't ask you this: Are you a wine critic, a wine reviewer, all of that? You sort of answered that, you know, with the three columns. Um, well, I just, you know, from
4: a uh, my own perspective, I'm uh, a wine critic, critic, and as we started, we started to talk about it before, but you know, from uh, this is uh, informed opinion that I'm offering. Right. Right. Um, you know I've had this uh, uh, discussion with writers for other publications, and I don't, I, I don't think my job is to, to accept every genre of wine as equally good and simply make recommendations within uh, all of these equally good genres. I have that, strong opinions about that's, genres, that's, and,
3: and I offer them. Right because you're writing about your opinion. So with the Internet and, I guess, blogging and all of that, it's become more decentralized, democratized. I mean, there's just – if you're a consumer, there's just access to more voices, some of them being critical. I I think – yeah, this is a great thing. You know,
4: one of the the problems in in, uh, American wine culture in in the 90s and the first part of this century was that you had uh, powerful – critics that were basically of one voice. Robert Parker, the Wine Spectator. A handful, literally. And, right? and they uh, pretty much promoted the same style of wine. And, you know, there were other um, wines. Uh, wines and other styles were produced, but they got little attention or
3: they were dissed relentlessly. Yeah, I don't think the natural wine movement could have got any traction in the old days that way. Yeah.
4: So... Um, you know, I think that one thing I was able to do was to offer an alternative um, perspective on on wines. Um, and then, you know, with blogging and social media and high-speed internet, um, a lot of other voices uh, started to be heard. And I think you saw a, a, ch- a rapid change in... Uh, uh the sense of diversity in in American wine not only uh in, in the wine being produced but in the audience for for these wines you know there's still a kind of a stereotype of the American wine consumer uh right. abroad is just liking big you know Oceanous fruit bombs cali
3: cabs you know or
4: oaky yeah. alcoholic wines but uh there's been a whole movement for it, restrained it, wines Yeah, it's, it's so it's it, ho- I, I just want to say that um, I, I am totally in favor of this, and you know part one of the uh, subversive um, goal of the wine school column in particular is to you know just in an idealistic sense is to eliminate the wine critic uh, as the one telling you what you should drink there 'd always I think be a role. For wine critics to to inspire, to to get you to think, to uh, take a different perspective, but um, maybe uh, the more confident we all feel about our own tastes, the less
3: we need to be told what's good and what's not. Well, it's hard not to talk about social media, and whereas. Where wine is going, without talking about, let's say, millennials who don't even know who like the Parkers and some of these guys are, unless they're really nerdy guys. I mean, they get their information peer to peer; they get it, you know, from all these blogs and everything. I mean, w- have they changed the wine business? I mean, uh, more I'm than baby, take a, baby a contrarian
4: view. Okay, <laughs> for, let me hear you uh, on this. I, you know, I think um, the only thing that's different about millennials is their age. I think, uh, and and the fact that they've grown up and are more comfortable with different forms of, of media. Um, but I think, like everybody else, uh, nobody wants to be um, marketed to. Nobody wants uh, to be bullshitted. Nobody wants, uh, uh, you know, a, a phoniness. Everybody right. wants to hear a real talk, real opinion, and. Uh, you know the advantage that millennials have is to come along in a different uh, point on the the arc of the American food and wine revolution. Right. Millennials uh, have a far greater chance of having grown up in a in a household where there was wine on the table or where people, you know, cared about food. Um, and different exposure. I mean, you see it just in in terms of craft beer. You know, you you grow up. Uh, with a certain element of connoisseurship that, you know, is connoisseurship is not just some uh, aristocratic, vaguely European notion that's applied <laughs> to wine by people like the characters in Fraser. It's, right. you know, it's something that you've done all your life, whether it's, uh, you know, chocolate or coffee or beer or,
3: or... And so wine is just one more thing. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, We have to take a quick break. Um, We're talking to Eric Asimov. Eric is the chief wine critic of the New York Times. When we come back, I have a couple more questions um, that I want to throw at Eric. I also want to subject Eric to our weekly wine list. And then Eric and I are going to taste a wine for our weekly wine, sip and see if we like it. So you're listening to the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back.
5: I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company, but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years, and plus, each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be, and that's just the way it is.
1: This is Bob Moore. He and his wife Charlie started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees.
5: I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right.
1: The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP, Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs.
4: It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has
1: in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process.
4: For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job, and, and
1: obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it.
5: Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine.
1: Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole-grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
2: Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter.
3: All right, we're back. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. My guest is Eric Asimov. Eric is the chief wine critic of The New York Times. Um, I have a couple more questions for Eric, and then we'll go over the wine list, and we'll taste a little wine. Um, Eric, I wouldn't let you out of here unless we talked a little about the organic, biodynamic, and natural wine movement, which we alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, the critics of yesteryear wouldn't really cover that stuff. How do you see this whole movement, the wines? I mean, give me your take on on what's going on with... Because I think it's had some traction for the last five, seven, ten years.
4: Well, first, I I would separate it into two parts. The uh, organic and biodynamic, you're talking largely about the agriculture. Right. This is uh, growing grapes. And uh, I think um, anybody who pays attention to their food, how it's raised, where it comes from, um, uh people who eat organic yes um you know needs to pay attention to the wine too because uh wine is it, it's a it's a good wine an agricultural product and if you care about um organically raised food you should care about your wine too um the natural wine movement um Adds to this, I mean, you're, you're gonna you're growing your grapes this way, and then in the cellar where you transform it into wine, you're making it in as minimalist a way as possible. And to put that into context, if you're, you know, talking about some of the mass market wines, the the, the two buck chucks or or whatever, Franzia. you're talking about um, an industrial. A product that is being manipulated to fit a pre preconceived notion of what it ought to be. It's a processed product, just like you're making breakfast cereal or or you know uh, cookies or or whatever. You're focus grouping the the wine and then you're uh, manipulating it, whether you know you're adding enzymes or acidity or so powdered you, tannin.
1: you or,
3: got into that a couple of weeks ago. Yes. you talk, now i I think you're referring to those are kind of bad wines compared to what's um, available.
4: you know I, I think uh, we ought to look in, and decide what it is. It's the equivalent of junk wine' junk right. food. Which is um, So you not can call green. it junk wine. Right. Now, you know, if people choose to, to eat at fast food restaurants or chain restaurants, that's a, that's a choice. And it, it means that, you know, food, healthy food, good food, visionary food is maybe not a, a priority in, in their lives. And the same is true with wine. So I don't, I don't question anybody who makes that decision,
3: but I want people to make informed decisions, but there was, there was a mention or an argument that even that, if that gets people to drinking wine, that's a good thing. And I don't agree with it, and I think you don't.
4: No, I, I mean, I don't care whether people drink wine or not. I think, you know, there's a lot of pleasure in drinking good wine, a lot of fulfillment, a, a lot of uh, joy in, in doing it. Um, and if people want to do that uh i i can suggest some great wines to right. to drink but i have no stake in the wine business i i view myself strictly as a journalist i'm not a member of the wine trade i'm not a booster and i don't um you know it's it doesn't the, the fortunes of the wine business interest me only as uh as far as uh, good wines being widely available for right. people uh, who who want to
3: to drink them. So when when you look at organic and biodynamic wines, there are a lot of good wines out there. I mean,
4: um, I think so, but I don't think that uh,
3: that doesn't guarantee a, a good wine. I didn't say that, right? No, you, you know did. the the quality you know can vary, yeah. and I think that may be an issue it may be more of an issue with organic yeah. and bio i think they've gotten better at it now the now wine. the
4: natural wine movement is an extension of this and um it's it as i said it's the idea that you're not putting you're you're making wine in the most minimalist way possible Low intervention. and this has become a really contentious issue in in the wine world because um uh a lot of people feel threatened by the notion that uh People are are um, pr- promoting their wine as somehow more natural than somebody else's. Um, they feel defensive about right. it. They feel <laughs> so um, calm down. Will you? you know, and and honestly, this is a uh, it's a sliver of the wine business. Um, you know, the notion that there's some sort of organized movement is is ridiculous. Although that there there are. People who have acted uh, to a, promote it.
3: There was a raw wine fair. Yeah, in Berkeley, there have been
4: wine. Last fall. There have been gatherings right. for people who are interested. But but the notion that um, you know you have some sort of militant holier than thou <laughs> hey. movement. If if the people who feel defensive about it never mention natural wine,
3: nobody would know that there are, are people who are holier than thou about it. I, I agree with you. All right, I'm going to ask you one last thing. I have a bunch of other things to ask you, but I'll ask you this. Would you say you're a Sherry fan? A big Sherry? Love Sherry. Okay, so you're the right guy. Give us – I don't think people know enough or drink enough about Sherry. Give me a quick primer on why people – you know, should try it and what it is. You know, mix it up a little. Tell me about sherry, the virtues. Um, well, uh, sherry is
4: is one of the most unusual wines that you're ever going to taste. Uh, instead of you know what what you expect from a wine, this kind of fruity uh, flavor, you're going to get a, a an almost uh, yeasty, nutty, nutty. Uh, 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 very unsweet flavor. It's the antithesis to, to fruit, in a way. Um, and yet, its I find it irresistible, uh, and I admit it may be a, a small niche of people. Um, the uh, error that people make in their assumptions about sherry is, is A, uh, thinking that it's sweet. There are sweet cherries, but most of them are not. And uh, associating it with uh, you know an elderly relative who right. who kept a bottle Must a dusty bottle, bottle. Right. Exactly. Um, and what this probably means is that you've had some bale, sp- bad spoiled sherry somewhere along the line. I mean, right. I know that's how I was introduced to sherry to from my grandmother. Um, the fact is that if you. Uh, a good sherry is one of the great values in the wine world, and there's been a, a sherry revolution in the last few um Few years, and it's uh, predominantly Spanish. It all it all it's comes. All Spanish. Sherry is is from uh, the
3: Sherry region of southern Heves. Spain. Yes. And how diverse are the grapes? Are there many different um, grapes to make? There sherry? There are two or? basic grapes: okay. uh, Palomino,
4: which is uh, makes the uh, uh, Fino and Amontillado, and and. Um, uh, Oloroso, the major types of sherry. And then there's a a second grape, uh, Pedro Jimenez, or
3: often referred to as PX. That's the name of the grape. Yeah, that makes a a very sweet sherry. So tell me some good pairings. When you pull out sherry, good with a cigar, good with cheese, good with a meal. I mean, what are the... Um, Well, first of all... um,
4: we're talking about good sherry. So you may spend right. a few extra bucks, but it's still uh, very good. And it, and it may be uh, an unfiltered sherry and and, and uh, fall into this niche of sherries that are made with quality in mind rather than quantity. Uh, with a Fino or Manzanilla sherry, it's brilliant with uh, seafood. Um, if you go to a Spanish... Uh, tapas bar. You may have a, a glass of fino with um, Marcona almonds and olives. Nothing better. It's just brilliant. With uh, Spanish ham, it's great. Ham. Uh, Amontillado, which is a, a slightly um, stronger, slightly darker uh, flavor. It's great with uh, poultry, with uh, mushroomy kinds of flavors, risotto. Earthy. Yeah.
3: Great. Um, All right, so I want people, because Eric knows what he's talking about, explore sherry a little. You know, you have an idea of what it is now. Um, it's a very seriously made um, wine. And it goes well with a lot of foods. I've,
2: I've written
4: quite a bit on sherry in the last few years, so um, I highly recommend you you, could, you Google
3: those articles. You Google those. And just going back, because I want to move to our wine list. Have you written a lot about organic, biodynamic, natural wines? Well, um,
4: you know, I I feel like I'm always writing about wines that are uh, made in uh, that way. Um, right. There are famous you know, or the big very wineries least. that are Absolutely. organic that you know, don't even put it on. We the don't label. always focus on the methods of of agriculture, but uh, many of the wines that I'm uh, writing about uh, and recommending are made with, uh, you know, at least if not strictly organic and bio, or biodynamic, at least some degree of, of sustainability,
3: right. which is really what's going on. It doesn't have to necessarily be. You know, labeled, but to be biodynamic, you have to follow a fir- you know a certain.
4: Well, you know, a lot of people will follow these um, methods without necessarily obtaining some sort of certification, right. which you know essentially is is entering a bureaucracy and paying
3: money. and <laughs> right. You know, a lot of small producers like uh, would, would like to avoid that. All right, let's move on to our wine list. I'm excited to get Eric to answer a bunch of questions. All spontaneous. You don't have to go on too much. All right, so what are you drinking now? Not right now. I know what we're drinking, yeah. but are you trying things? Is there something in front of you that well, you're you know? A lot of time, uh, the wines
4: that I'm, I'm drinking are tied to a, a what particular story. And so, what is that? Uh, right? So, I've just been drinking a lot of a uh, Riesling from okay. from Germany. Uh, that's tied up with a wine school uh, a column. Uh, I just have a, a column on. Uh, 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 Grand Reserve, uh Rioja, right. been drinking a lot of those. That's
3: today in the times.
4: And, um, you know, I've got some, um, I've said this before, I've been obsessed for the last year with Aligoté from Burgundy, and I'll have more to say about that in the, the, the coming weeks.
3: Is Aligoté a um, more reasonable entree into Burgundy? Yes, and... Um, you know, the thing
4: to understand about Aligoté is that, uh, you know, it's always been uh, somewhat despised as a thin, acidic, cheap wine fit only to, you know, to pour a creme Village. de cassis and right. make a cure. And right. and, and yet, um, so many great Burgundy pro- producers, the... the you know, the elite of Burgundy, people pay hundreds of dollars
3: for their bottles. They make an Aligotay too. So, one thing we haven't talked about, a specific wine. So, give me one or two producers, Aligotays. Yeah, you know, uh, reasonable. uh Aubert de Villain, who is uh, uh, the maybe the most
4: respected. Romani? Yeah, uh, from uh, Domaine de la Romanicante. Conti. V I L L A I N E? V I L L A I N E, Now, he and his wife uh, have their own personal domain, A N P de Villain. And they are situated in uh, Bouzeron, which is kind of on the in the sticks of, of Burgundy, and it's the one region in Burgundy where Aligoté is is maybe the major grape. Where uh, you have the right not to say not to call the wine Aligoté, but to call it Bouzeron because the white Bouzeron is going to be Aligoté. So you got the best and guy in one of the best he's, regions he's turning a, out. A- he's a uh, You know, a a wonderful guy, um, and he's making wonderful aligote, or I should say his nephew, who has overseen
3: the the domain for the last 15 years or so. All right, that's a good one. Give me Eric Asimov's favorite wine and food pairing.
4: (laughs) Do you have have one? Can I answer that the way Hugh Johnson once answered the question, what is your favorite wine? Uh, he said, um, well, the first bottle is always good, <laughs> and the second bottle is even better, but I like the third bottle best. Okay. <laughs> Listen, to be in this job, um, you have to love a lot of different wines, and, and I do. And, you know, whether it's uh, uh, from Oregon, from France, from Italy, from Greece, from Germany. Everything has a know, different pairing. It's not so much a different pairing, but it's a different occasion you know, it's they're right, the right time for so many different wines. And, and um, you know, uh, but I will say that, that Burgundy goes with a lot of things. Okay, and It's a great pairing.
3: Eloquently unanswered. Duly noted. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot. And, you know, you should be able to answer this. But let's talk New York favorite wine restaurant and or bar. I'm talking about a restaurant where the slant towards the wine list, the wine service, the variety. Anything come to mind to you that I have a, a lot of
4: favorite places and I've, you know, I've I've said so in print. Okay. Um, you know, I love the uh, Italian wine list at, at Maiolino. Terrific, uh, wonderful uh, Barolo selection and, and Nebbiolo of, of all kinds. Um, I uh, I like the uh, the Spanish wine selection at Casimono. Um, my will plug my friend Mateo's. Uh, uh, tapas bar pata negra he always has some great sherries there and if you uh, we were talking about sherries yep. in, in the east village um but you know um i i don't i don't go to a restaurant all, just to drink wine um, right. i mean i'm always always choosing to go there for the food and and i think nowadays it's um it's incumbent on restaurants to have really good wine lists. It's just part of the restaurant experience. So. And when restaurants neglect this, um, it's just it it's to their uh, it contributes to their own demise. They're never going to get anywhere. I think you're right, especially if the food is
3: you know well prepared and diverse.
4: You know, I went to uh, I, I was just in Bushwick the other night. And uh, went to a restaurant that I had never been to uh, before. Uh, Faro? Faro.
3: Faro's terrific. And
4: I really enjoyed it. How and they had a you know, a terrific wine list. All you know, maybe they had one wine in in the three figures and it and it seemed to me Perfect uh, for a restaurant, neighborhood restaurant like this, really good food, a lot of wines to get in in, in the fifty dollar bottle range, and, and I, I was really
3: impressed. You know where we do the show from Roberta's, right? And Roberta's, you know, is famous for their pizza. Carlos Maracci's a very well regarded chef and has other dishes. But similar to Faro, they have a very curated, interesting wine list. And yeah. I know you're staying here to eat, and you know, you'll know you discover that, and I'm curious on your take. All right, so do you have a favorite all-time wine? Was it that wine <laughs> you tasted at 14? Is there something that changed your life, oh, gosh. birthday
4: wine? You know, um, there are many different wines, and... Um,
3: See, I you get know, why I, it's hard and, and, for you to give uh, one answer. You know,
4: there are many different meaningful wines. And uh, I would say, you know, if I have to pick one wine, um, you know, I I, I would tell... Uh, I once uh, visited uh, a place in Bordeaux called uh, Domaine de Jogaret. This is... Um, uh, In contrast to the image of the chateau, you know... The castle. Owned by a multinational corporation and some guy in an ascot whose job is marketing. Um, This is a a farmer who's had his uh, three acres of land in Saint-Julien for... His family has had it for 400 years or so. And uh, I fell in love with his wines because... um, you know, in contrast to to many Bordeaux, they were soulful wines. They were, they were, you know, they had the the stature of of a Cabernet wine with the soul of a, of a Burgundy wine.
3: Now, um, are they available, or it's such small production? Oh, well,
4: it's a very small producer, but you can you can find them. They're it, imported say what, by say Neil w-
3: Rosenthal, who's a good
4: importer. Yeah, what's the name of the wine uh, again? Domaine uh, de jogueray J A U. J-A-U-G-U-E, I'm sorry, U-R-E-T. I'm not so good at spelling off the top of my head. I I know. But the the story is I'm visiting this guy, and we spent uh, a lot of time together, and I think, you know, we sort of moved from a, a sort of a suspicious relationship to a more, we had lunch and sort of broke bread and we went back to walked in the vineyard, went back to his place and so he goes into his, uh, it's really just like a shed, he says I have one more wine I want you to taste <laughs> and he pull, goes out pulls out this wine, it doesn't have a label on it, it looks almost like a dark rosé um, he said, "This is a 1943 oh God, it's my birth year, oh boy. Um, his father obviously made the wine in the middle of World War II under uh, horrible conditions, and he you know, he was now at that time I visited, almost seventy years old. he didn't have an heir, didn't know what was going to happen to his estate. It was such an emotional wine. It was, you know, delicious and and, and still alive. And, and the idea that he was sharing this with me Amazing. just
3: meant a lot to me. And those are the kinds of experiences you have. It's not just about the wine. It's about the people and the experience. I agree with that. All right, You're qualified to answer this, and I didn't steal this from you. But I ask all my uh, guests to recommend... Best wine around 15 bucks. And I want you to recommend a red and a white, 15 to 20 bucks. Um, Is it hard for you to hone in on one for each? Like a lot of people say Muscadet on the white.
4: No, uh, I, I, I mean, I would uh, answer that uh, Generally, by saying uh, Loire Valley, okay. which encompasses uh, Muscadet, there's a lot and, of uh, good you know, wine, and a lot of reds, be. a lot of whites. Um, you know, and I'm I'm talking really about uh, not the Sancerre region so much, which is more expensive, but west of that, the uh, the Touraine, Anjou, Chenin Blanc. Um, uh, Cabernet Franc and other. There's Gamay and and so on. The Muscadet. Right. These are can be brilliant wines and always uh, so undervalued. Let's say Loire
3: for red and white. I would say that for okay. red and white. Yeah. All right. So that's the wine list. All right, Eric. We're going to wrap up, but before we wrap up, let's taste a little wine. I see somebody familiar walking in. Um, from pictures. All right. So. Every week we taste a different wine on air. For our weekly wine sip this week, we're going to taste a 2014 Planeta. What are we drinking, Eric? We're drinking Cherosuolo di Vittoria, which I would call Cherosuolo, but Eric <laughs> had it right. Di Vittoria from Sicily. It's an Italian wine. This wine is 60 percent Nero d'Avola and 40 percent Frappato. Yes, uh, red grapes. The wine retails for fifteen to twenty bucks, and it's available, you know, at better wine stores. You know,
4: just to add, uh, Sicily is also a great uh, source for white and reds that that are in that seventeen dollar
3: range. Good point. Sicily's there. All right. So before we take a sip. Tell me, can you tell me a little more about the wine, the region, the winemaker? You just Um, made a good point about Sicilian wines, good quality, good value. uh, The Vittoria
4: region is uh, really under the radar right now. uh, the wine, the Sicilian wines that have gotten the most attention all come from Mount Etna. And, of right. course, they have a great story. You've got this volcano and uh, Norello de Mascalese and very trendy and, and excellent wines. Fascinating region. But uh, just a little south of that is the Vittoria region, uh, where you have a little bit uh, softer wines, not as uh, as tannic generally. Uh, and they they belie the stereotype of of Sicilian wines as big and heavy and alcoholic. These are very uh, these can be light and, in some cases, uh, even delicate. The Frappato is a very vibrant, delicate red grape. The Nero D'avola is a little heavier, uh, and and they combine very well in in these wines. Um, and it's a small region, so you don't have a lot of producers there. You have. Uh, but you have some great producers like Ariana Occhipinti and uh Kose and some great value producers like uh Val del Cate. and uh Planeta is was in the movement larger. a little older, a little larger
3: and they helped bring uh credibility to the, to Sicily and I so think, kudos to them for that. Yes. All right, so let's uh let's evaluate this. So let's look at the color first. I'd say it's a deep red. Yeah. Um but it's
4: it's more on the ruby end than on the purple red. Right, the red ruby. It's not ruby. black. Right, All right. And so let's
3: let's go for the nose. You can
4: see your finger through the through the wine. Uh, yes.
3: All right, give me some nose descriptors.
4: Well, you know, um, it to me, the wine smells uh, alive. Um, it does. You know, you get your kind of cherry. Um, Red flavors, fruit. but there's also an, an earthy element to it that I like very much. Um, and, you know, this is often what you find. A little
3: minerality
4: tobacco? A little bit, a little tobacco, but it's not, I think, you know, you might see more of that as this wine ages a little bit. Is, um, is this a
3: wine that you could hold on to? You should drink it in a.
4: Um, I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily hold on to this wine, but I might hold on to a other, different Cerisolo. Right. Um I think this wine is a little bit uh bigger than a lot of them a little by that is I mean uh just y- you taste the alcohol a little bit yeah. more than I would want I definitely to definitely taste the alcohol. Um and it's it, it's a little bit uh more on the on the thick side. I right? right, so you have a, l- a lot of uh different versions that might be a little um Lighter body, a little more. So this flexible. is not
3: necessarily necessarily a classic example. So let's, Eric, let's. It's not throw, a bad example. No, no, no. Means. I didn't say. It. So yeah. let's throw it over the tongue. So the mouth feel.
4: It's it's very pleasant. It's plump drinkable and juicy right now. Yeah, it's it's juicy. It's not heavy. It's certainly not oaky. What's um, the mouth
3: feel? Medium. I would say it's medium, medium body, medium plus. Um, All right, give me some. Palette descriptors
4: it's um, you know it's very consistent with the with the aroma you right. get this um, it is red fruit uh, earthiness a little bit of um I agree minerality uh, I, it's not as textured as I would like it to be Um but you know, if this is a wine that you you could have with uh, red meat. Certainly, uh, you know sausages, burgers, um, good barbecue wine. Good
3: barbecue wine. How about for sure. red sauce, Italian red sauce, or not um, the best choice? I,
4: you know maybe not this one. Okay, I, I think um, you know you you want a little bit uh, more
3: resilience in the wine. This right. is a little bit soft. All right, so this wine, okay, we like it, we love it. Tell me what you think of this wine. Yeah, I think it's a,
4: you know, I'm going to say it's a credible version. Um, It's not
3: bad. Okay. It's decent. And for 15, 16. I can think of better
4: examples, but for 15 or 16, it's not unpleasing. It's very quaffable.
3: All right, so we like this wine. That's the uh, 2014 Planeta Cheraso. Well, how do I keep Cherasuolo? di, Ceris- di Vittorio, a Sicilian wine from Italy. All right, we're going to wrap this show up. If you have a question, wine happening or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation That's Sam at the Grape Nation. You could follow the show on Facebook on the Grape Nation page. We post. We'll post uh, Eric's wine list answers and the wine we drank today. Um, on our uh, Facebook page. You can follow us on Instagram, at SBenRuby. You can follow us on Twitter, at BenRuby. And Eric, two things. Eric has two books out, which we mentioned. Those are available on Amazon and at Booksellers, right? Uh, Independent Booksellers everywhere. Okay. Um, And... Tell us where, if people want to follow you on social media or look for past articles, what's the best thing they could do?
4: Um, the um, past articles, uh, the best thing to do is just to use good old Google and what would you um, do? Eric Asimov, Rioja? I mean, have, yeah. or, that's and, the best And expl- if you put an NYT in there, that okay. uh, is even uh, better. We have a search function on the Times website, yes. but it, it just is not as good as, as – Plain old
3: Google. Yeah. But even if you go to the Times site, I mean, if you look at the poor, there's just yeah, a list. They'll, they'll be It'll uh, take you months to read other, the first you know, 15 right. articles. Um, so you can catch up on uh, all Eric's stuff And there. follow
4: me on uh, Twitter at Eric Asimov or Instagram. At and Eric And i can uh, often sending out links to, to new articles.
3: And every Wednesday in the New York Times... Um, Eric's columns appear. So we want to thank our guest Eric Asimov, chief wine critic for the New York Times. We want to thank our engineer Vitor, and we want to thank everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to the Grape Nation. <coughs>